This is Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Real cops, real stories. I'm your host, Adam Shand. It's back to the Police Academy. Class 357 is in the home stretch towards attestation. And we talk to the Commissioner, Karen Webb, about her first year in the job. This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. Police Bank is a member-owned bank. Therefore, the focus is always on its members. With an emphasis on people, Police Bank shows its commitment by supporting various organisations, community groups, social clubs and sporting teams within the policing community. Police Bank works hard today to continue to protect the financial security and well-being of members of the police force and their families, friends and communities. Commissioner Karen Webb took over the helm of New South Wales Police in February 2022, after three decades in the job. She began in general duties at Castle Hill Police Station in Sydney's northwest. Over her career, Karen has worked in the state surveillance branch, Police Transport and Public Safety Command and the Child Mistreatment Unit. Her last command was the Traffic and Highway Patrol. Karen brings a focus on supporting victims of domestic and sexual violence and a zero-tolerance approach to organised crime. She understands the challenge facing police of maintaining trust and validity in the community. Commissioner, thank you for joining us today on your own podcast, Inside the New South Wales Police Force. Now, one year in the job, plus a few weeks, how are you going in the perception versus reality stakes of being the Commissioner of New South Wales Police? Still uh, still on cloud nine, it's an honour and a privilege to lead the organisation. I think I've sort of got my feet under the desk now, uh, starting to be, feel a bit more comfortable in the role and uh, realise how enormous the task is, but rewarding nonetheless. You're coming at a challenging time to this job because around the world there's some conflicting trends. We have crime rates across the Western world falling. We have police that are better equipped, better trained, better everything. And yet we read in newspapers around the world a contemporary crisis of police legitimacy. What do you think that means in the New South Wales context? How do you read that, that measure of legitimacy of what you're doing? Well, it's really about community satisfaction and the community willingness to work with us and in partnership with us. And that's really the core of policing is that we really need to be a light touch and only police things that need to be policed. And I often say we can't arrest our way out of a problem. And often a problem might present as a, uh, a policing problem at the very end, but really it's a community problem that police end up dealing with at, you know, three o'clock in the morning or something. So really we rely on the community as our eyes and ears and in working in partnership in terms of those things that, you know, concern the community. For example, one of the things that uh, consumes a lot of police time at the moment and importantly so is domestic violence. Domestic and family violence is a very large proportion of our work and it's not just a policing problem. We often deal with the the result of domestic violence and violence in the home, but the issues that underpin domestic violence situation are much deeper than just a law and order issue. Well, that's right because the media loves the word crisis and they love to drive action based on crises and we see there's a crisis in domestic violence because we're suddenly getting a lot of reports. I'm a bit counterintuitive on this. I've seen this around the country take place in all the police forces where police begin to take domestic violence more seriously. The reporting increases because people have a feeling that their complaints will be taken seriously. Do we have a crisis in New South Wales or is in fact are the numbers we're seeing in fact 
the solution, the application of a police force towards a problem? I think there's two parts to that. One is the increased confidence of victims and family and others to report domestic violence. So that's a good sign. And because of a lot of pressures in society, then there could be an increased prevalence. But really, good data is the only way we'd really understand that. But certainly, I think the fact that we're hearing more about it, the fact that there are laws specifically tackling domestic violence allow us to tackle that as a problem. When I joined the police many, many years ago, we didn't even have domestic violence laws. We had assault laws. So we've matured as a society and we've, re- we've responded to community needs and police are part of that in working with the criminal justice sector and other sectors in dealing with what those community needs are. Because there's no question that police are responding to domestic violence in New South Wales. I think it's 40 to 60% of a general duties police officer's time is spent in domestic violence issues. So I guess the, the focus becomes more about how the service is delivered and the outcomes. Aligning a victim of domestic violence with the court process that has to take place because often the victim just wants the beating to stop. Whereas once police get involved, there's now a court process on behalf of the Crown and the community. So aligning those two interests is often a challenge. Yeah, very difficult. A victim, once they come forward, you're right, does want the violence to stop. And often that means a disruption, if police become involved, a disruption to the family in some way, whether that's the removal of the offender or placing the victim in a place of safety to prevent ongoing violence, etc. So there's often, but not always, a um, interruption to the family. Things like domestic violence orders, AVOs, as we call them, orders to prohibit certain behaviour of an, of an offender or an alleged offender, and that sometimes works, but sometimes they are contested and they go to hearing like like a, a prosecution would. So it, it is complex, but it's one that we, a space we want to be in. We, we can only work in partnership, though. As I said, we require the support of not just a victim, but other witnesses, and I think there's campaigns that talk about not being a, ba- a bystander, etc. but also working in partnership with government and non-government agencies around reporting and supporting victims to come forward uh, so we can ensure their safety. What distresses me and causes me to lose sleep at night is when I hear about a a homicide victim, a, a victim of domestic violence that has resulted in someone's death. And I often think, what could we more could we have done? What more could we have done as a community to prevent it? So it's one that, it's a, it's a complex issue, but it's one we can't turn away from. Because back when you started in 1987, often we heard this phrase, just a domestic just a matter that's clo- that's dealt with behind closed doors. The community has expected police to step across the threshold, but it's a perilous journey sometimes. In, in our series one, we covered some cases where your domestic violence liaison officers, highly trained, very intuitive, very human, humanistic type people. What would you say to both the victims of domestic violence, but also your own officers dealing with this phenomenon about your determination within your your tenure? What I'd say to victims and the community is that to trust us and to come forward so we really can respond to the complete picture and the complete problem that allow me to work with other agencies. And what I say to the officers, and I understand and I talk to officers regularly about how much time this does take and how complex it's become, 
but they need to continue to do the work that they're doing. And my job as commissioner and as part of the executive is to engage with those other agencies and non-government agencies to help police, the frontline police, in the work that they do. So we need everyone to come together on this one and work through it because uh, police can't do it on their own and victims can't do it on their own and we have to work together. And also police need support themselves. We've gone through a lot of interviews so far with your officers and there's some tremendous people who regard their job as a calling and they look at those bad days they've had as part of the job. And it's funny because it's all becoming a catch cry now. They talk in a general sense and I say, stop there. Tell us about that bad day that you're referring to generally. And it comes out. And these people continue in the job. And one chap, uh, Brian Neville, who was on the scene of Peter Forsyth's murder 25 years ago, he said this wonderful thing. I'm not tough. I'm not a big guy. But resilience chose me. And I guess with that sort of attitude in play, you need to back it up. Yeah, exactly. And I think police officers, um, there's something special about an individual who wants to join the police and then make that their career and vocation. And I think officers, every day is a different day. So you never know what's going to confront you. And officers are built of, of tough things. The resilience is developed over time. And everyone has a threshold, though. Everyone, there's a, a limit or a bucket and everyone's bucket feels at different points in time. But to support officers, we've got lots of programs in place. And recently and in the la- within the last six months, we've been fortunate to be funded for the Pulse program, which is a whole range of things. But one of the things that really excites me is the appointment of wellbeing or, or clinicians to clusters across the state so that officers will have available to them that support that's very local and very accessible. And I think that's key is that if an officer needs support, needs help, that they need it when they need it, not not in six weeks' time, not in eight weeks' time, or, or with someone that they don't know and, and trust. And so this is about employing experienced clinicians who can understand the work of police officers and be available to them when they need it. So I'm really, really excited about this, and I think we're in the recruitment process at the moment. Why now? Why is Pulse needed now? Well, we've grown incrementally over the years. The services are available to police officers. We've come to understand the needs of police officers better, I suppose, over time. We've we've taken different approaches and we're not taking anything away necessarily. We're just adding in another uh, option for officers. Some officers might prefer to go off and see seek their own help. Some officers might be happy to do telehealth via an employee assistance program. Some may be happy to just talk to someone who's trained as a peer support officer or, or seek out one of our police chaplains. But this is an addition, but for me, an important addition to the suite of options available to officers. A few years ago, we introduced Recon, Reconnect, Recondition, all sorts of programs uh, for officers that deal with their physical, physiological well-being. But they're all steps in keeping our officers well in whatever way that is. You had a long policing career before you went into the, dare I say it, management levels of, of the police force. You bring this to the job. What in turn, what's, what's that experience in your career that leads you to Pulse? Well, I guess I've had every job I've had and every aspect of my own career has probably helped inform some of those uh, learnings myself. But I've worked in child abuse, I've worked in drug, I've worked in regional New South Wales, I've worked in management roles, dealing with people and their own stresses in, in the forensics area and other areas of the organisation. So it's given me the great opportunity and ability to see and observe other officers 
during that time and my own experiences and understand and listen. I'm a listener. I like to understand what officers want and I'm hoping that we can deliver some of those things. Yeah, you dodge my question. I'll ask it again. <laughs> Back on the beat there, Castle Hill, 80s. You're dealing with the public up front. You, you were forward-facing at that time. You still are, of course, now as a police commissioner. But back then, what were the what were the formative experiences for you and the interactions with people that led you to think of the community or forces looking after police officers as we do now? So as a young police officer, I actually had a bit of a career before I joined the police, so I wasn't straight out of school. I was one of those that didn't necessarily throw myself into work, but I watched and listened and had the great fortune to work with great officers who were, you know, senior and experienced and just watched how how everything operated. But certainly back in those days, you deal with whatever came across, whatever the calls for service was we dealt with, whether it was fatal motor vehicle accidents, home invasion, sexual assaults, all those sorts of things. And I think they're all uh, informative and instructive in terms of the pressures that could happen to any one officer at any you know, day, week, year of their service. And I think they're the the times that you see, you know, what what's needed behind the scenes, but it also gives you the opportunity of dealing with families in crisis, families in, in uh, grief, um, having to deliver death messages and, and deal with the human side of the community and understand that they have, at that point in time, a need to be listened to and, you know, we, and ask for to do a job. Because what we're seeing in policing, not just in New South Wales, but around the world in this so-called legitimacy crisis that we hear about, is not so much people not getting into the job, that's a problem too, but people leaving mid-career. When the state of New South Wales has invested a lot of money in training an individual who gets to the point that I can't go on, I want to go out somewhere else. And I think that's a big challenge for continuity and and, uh, the quality of justice in New South Wales. Oh, I don't see things as challenges as much as I see them as opportunities. So traditionally, when I joined the police, police officers were lifers. We joined for life and that was going to be our career from when we joined to when we retired happily at some point down the track. I think what I know now is that I've got about four or five generations of officers in in this organisation and I've got sons and I understand that this today's young person wants about five careers in their lifetime. I think what I need to do is be able to match their their need, not have them match mine. So I need to be more flexible and understand that if I have an officer that wants to do 10 or 20 years and then leave to something else, I'm grateful you know, that they've given me 10 or 15 or 20 years. And I think I need to manage my expectations that are more reflective of what the society and the community of potential employees wants. Also, the New South Wales Police Force has changed dramatically. I mean, I started work in 1986 and, and there was just the, the print media, television, radio, and they were owned by about three people. It's so different. Same thing for the police force. So so you can go into New South Wales Police, one of 22,000 employees, and find a range of careers that are, that, that are not mutually exclusive and so forth. I, say, I guess you're trying to encourage people to look at this. I mean, you've, you've stayed in, in uniform through your career. Mostly. Not always. Not always. I've done quite a few different roles. But I think that diversity has equipped me to do the role of commissioner. That's my experience and I've really enjoyed that. But I think that is the opportunity, is the variety of roles, whether that's different locations or just doing a different role within your same the same location, but there is so much opportunity and it's just about exposing officers to the opportunity. It's probably easier to say that this is the dream job and that you're having the best time of your whole career, but I'm sure there was a job back in the day you went, you know what? I love this job now. I'm going to stay in this. Remember what that was? 
oh, I can't name one. It's like trying to name your favourite child. And I think I can name uh, the positive experiences I've had in every role. So I wouldn't like to say that one was more memorable than the other for any particular reasons, but I've, I've really enjoyed every role I've had. So, and I've had so many. So I've been really lucky, whether it's working in Lismore as a detective, whether it's working in forensics, you know, for three years, or whether it's being an operations manager in Northwest Sydney, they've all been great. Yes. Um, any of your sons considering joining up? My eldest son did, and we said to him, you know, go out and get some life experience. But I think that ship has sailed now. He's enjoying what he's doing. and But who knows? You know, he's only young, so maybe one day. You'll notice I've not brought up the gender thing. No. We've been talking for 20 minutes. And neither did I. <laughs> I don't know why people are still so excited about the question of a, a female police commissioner or the first or the second. or the. Th Does it really matter anymore? Or are we, are we into a genuine era of meritocracy where people can make their way with a feeling of equality and, and a fair go? Well, I hope so. And I didn't have never made my role as commissioner about gender either. It just happens that I am a female. And people may be intrigued by it. And I am the first and the novelty will wear off. And I hope I'm not the last. So it's a job that anyone can do. But I do say this, though, and I think this is important across any organisation, but particularly this one, is that for young female officers that they need to be able to see what they could be. And I think whether it's whether you're a sergeant, whether you want to be an inspector, a superintendent or assistant commissioner, I think it is helpful for those young officers, junior officers, to be able to see women in those roles so that they think that it is actually achievable. For sure. That's great. Now, we're also doing a series on your academy. And what I found fascinating is, is dealing with your drill sergeant, Sergeant <laughs> Tony Wade. I think he's an absolute building block of, of everything you do, that, that role. The motto of the Academy, what is it? Truth, honesty, integrity. Tony Wade is the truth. Tells them this is a hierarchical organisation where you must follow orders. You need to turn these people alongside you from fellow students to colleagues. It's on the front line. And one of his great quotes was, you might think the learning curve here at Goulburn is steep, but once you're operational, it is vertical. How important is the Academy to, to the outcomes you're trying to achieve in the force generally? I started out of the academy all those years ago, 35 plus years ago. So it's important for many reasons, not just the academic learning, but the skills learning, how to do your job once you hit the streets. and But also those relationships you make with other people, whether it's other colleagues in the class or your tutors, et cetera. But it's a learning organisation. And, and I'd say this often too, is that I'm still learning. But the day I stop learning is the day I should retire. So the journey shouldn't end at the academy gates. It should continue for the rest of your career. And there's, you know, that goes to all sorts of things. And that's really about understanding, you know, what our community needs of us and being able to pivot to change for whatever the community needs are. If we stayed the same organisation it was in 1987, then, you know, we would have done ourselves out of a job quite possibly. But we have to evolve. We have to adapt. And to do that, individuals have to learn and maintain this legitimacy with that we opened the the interview with because i'm sure you were you had the old peels principles drilled into you as a young constable that the, the police officer is just the community member in a uniform doing what otherwise needed to be done and i think we've got a division between those principles and what happens today <laughs> plus a growing individualism in society which which in, in, in police ranks needs to be tempered with the fact that this is a serious job and that that there'll be moments where you have to do things you don't want to do and you'll need to follow orders. Later on, there'll be a chance to talk about it, but we can't dissolve the principles to meet issues of popularity, in my opinion. No, and the purely in principles, you know, I have saved on my desktop, you know, because 
those principles from 1829 are as relevant today as they were back then. And we've enshrined similar thing in our Section 7 of the Police Act, but basically says that we act, you know, with integrity and serve the community, etc., etc. As you point out, the community is... I don't know, maybe it's just how we see it at the, at the time and maybe it's always been diverse and mixed with diverse views, but certainly it's about policing with consent. Some person's views might differ on what that is, but generally, you know, the laws exist because they're the laws of the, the society and we police the laws of the day. That's right. And for listeners, that's Sir Robert Peel, who's really the father of the modern police force. And, and uh, I think his, if you look them up, these principles are still relevant today. And I'm really glad to see the commissioner has them on her desk because some, some police I've met, they say, Robert who? And then, <laughs> then I know they've got problems. So what are your goals from here? You've got, a, you've got a big agenda. What can we expect in the next year of your tenure? So I set out five principles, priorities for when I when I started as commissioner, and I'm, they remain current now, and the work will continue in each of those. So the first one is about a connected community, and that is really making sure that officers, whether that's at my level or whether that's at grassroots constable level, that they are connected with their community and understands what their community needs, knowing that each community is slightly different in different ways. Regional policing might be different to metropolitan policing and so on. So our connection and understanding that is is key. The second is really about the silent crimes that we touched on. So domestic violence, child abuse, sexual violence and cybercrime, which is a pervasive and increasing crime as well. So we need to tackle those types of crimes with sensitivity. There are crime types that are increasing so we actually need to understand how else can we tackle these crimes and get the outcomes, and that is victim safety. The third is around our next gen. So young people and our Aboriginal communities, we, we need to be involved in, the, in the, how that's tracking to make sure that our future is brighter and we don't have a youth crime problem that manifests itself when they're down, years down the track, even worse. Organised crime is also a priority and that is one that requires us to work in partnership with our national and international partners because it's a global it's a global issue. And then the fifth, which is really should be number one, is is a connected workforce and that's is that's my people and the capability to help them do the job that they need to do. And you're also might I talk my own interest here for a minute, communicating with the community and the force in a different way less mainstream media, more through channels like this. How important is that to speak in a different way to a broader cohort? Uh, that's really about reach and understanding that not everyone watches the nightly news or listens to you know commercial radio. And so the offerings, I think we need to be different. And that's a little bit about how you know I talk about meeting the um, expectations of potential recruits in the community is that we need to understand their expectations and not just serve up what we think. So it's important that we diversify and try and make extend our reach as far as we can. And so whether that's digital in one form or another, social media in one form or another. So it's just about extending our reach as far as we can. Well, thank you for your time and I wish you all the very best in the job, Commissioner Karen Webb. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. That was Commissioner Karen Webb on her first year and thanks to her for supporting the idea of this podcast. In a moment, it's back to the parade ground with Protocol Sergeant Tony Wade. Now, a message from our sponsor. Whether you're thinking about purchasing your first home or thinking about your next investment property, Police Bank have a range of loans to help make your dream of owning a home a reality. 
with deposit options starting as low as 5%. Eligibility criteria applies. See terms and conditions in the show notes for more information. Welcome back to the Academy. This segment is sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police and law enforcement. Class 357 at the Police Academy is in the home stretch towards attestation. There are exams and fitness tests to pass, and a final date with Mr Wade on the parade ground, in front of the police minister, the commissioner, friends and family, and the media beaming their performance to millions. When we left you last time, there was a challenge ahead. You were trying to get cohesion and discipline between them on the parade ground. There was a certain amount of frustration there because you didn't feel they were showing you who they were. How are we going now, this uh, month or two later? I think the month in between the time that we spoke and now they've started to get that kind of realisation that it's going to happen and it's going to happen to them pretty soon. So it's starting to get a little bit more you know, cohesion, a little, bit, a little bit more focus. Because we're only six weeks away from attestation now. That steep learning curve is, is now vertical, as you, as you called it? Yes, and, uh, and, and that is a real crunch time for them. So it's coming in, into focus and that they're starting to realise this is for real, for sure. Because one of my favourite lines from the first episode was, this is not a Mexican wave. How are they out on the parade ground now? Mostly much better. <laughs> Mind you, they've had a fair bit more practice between then and now, so they're starting to get it. So how did you address their challenges over that intervening period since we've been here? Repetition. That's it. Repetition. Just over and over and over again, just drilling into them that this is, this is important. And I'm not just talking about the physical stuff. I'm talking about the, the reassurance that, that with a bit of focus and a bit of discipline, they'll be fine. So just repeating that. Do you start to see penny drop moments where people's mind is changing? Individually, no. Collectively, yes. And we, I'm certainly seeing that. And I'll tell you one of, the, well, one of the other things that has been a real change for the senior class is for the junior class to arrive. So all of a sudden, they've got to impress other people. And they've started to do that. Tell us about the junior class. They've been here for two and a half weeks deer in the headlights at the moment um they went into uniform a week and a half ago and yeah that's coming along but they are they're looking to to the senior class for a bit of guidance and i think the senior class is starting to accept that and um almost look like they want to show off to them so they they're starting to starting to lift their game as well so the senior class are feeling like the veterans now they're experienced and, and they... exactly yes that's that's a very good way to put it there they're absolute veterans down here. In this last six weeks for the senior class, you've really got to put the polish on things. You've got to take them to that final stage because they're going to be operational in a short period of time. What happens next for them? To be, to be blatantly honest, um, obviously I, I don't have anything to do with the assessment process of, of whether it be operational safety, law and all that kind of stuff. What I start to, well, and, and I've said to the senior class with their drill this week and I will tomorrow as well, is the parade is theirs. It's not mine. It's theirs. And in a few short weeks, they're going to have thousands of people watching them do exactly what they're going to be doing here today. So they need to start practicing what they want to do on that day and not practice anything that they don't want to do on that day. 
they're not going to have the opportunity to hold up a target showing a nice grouping to their family and friends up on the hill. They're not going to be able to hold up their exam results and say, hey, look, how, did I, how well I did in such and such an exam. The only thing they've got available to them to impress their family and friends and show all the bosses who'll be all, in all the front rows how focused they are is their drill. So drill becomes the most important thing on their plate. Do you have people who've come to you? You said before that your door's always open. Sometimes crossing the threshold could be an intimidating experience. But have you had people come to you with challenges, problems? Yes. Yes, definitely. Some of the problems have been just very simple drill stuff and others has been others have had problems with equipment. I'm talking about uniform and things like that. Uh, and others have had problems encouraging their classmates to do what they need to do. We spoke earlier about the, uh, about the duty student role and sometimes they've had problems getting messages across to the rest of their cohort. And I notice even in a quick exchange when we were here last time with one of your duty students, you were reminding him about the mode of address to a sergeant, the mode of address as a leader. You're developing some of these leadership qualities. Mm. Yes, because that's what's expected in the field and the field is going to expect them to be not fully formed, but certainly at a stage where they can accept instruction from the field, they're going to also be expecting them to have a certain amount of nous, a certain amount of, I like to call it stand-up ability, that they can actually conduct in themselves in a, in a reasonable fashion in terms of they've got enough common sense to be able to read a situation or talk to somebody in the right way, and whether that be one of the customers or whether that be uh, the senior person in the station, which is everybody. That's what the field expects, I think. Not a fully formed constable, but certainly somebody who's on the way and who is capable of becoming a fully formed one. And that's the paradox of policing and its training, is that you're taught to, I guess, leave your ego at the door to some extent, leave your particular likes and dislikes and be part of a group and an organism, and you see it on the parade ground. But on the job, they will be expected to show judgment and take individual decisions without someone to help them mm. almost like a cricket team so you've got a team of individuals yes we all need to work together to get the job done but in all honesty when you are out maybe by yourself or even with a with a with a partner working the truck you've got to be able to function together or if you're by yourself by yourself in order to you know achieve the team's goals but yeah, you are a team of individuals, definitely. Yeah. I was actually, when I was coming, I was thinking the cricket analogy. It's a perfect one. Obviously, a cricket fan as well. We did a, uh, an interview with Brian Neville, who was with Peter Forsyth when he died there in, in Ultimo. Spoke about himself in very humble and very interesting terms about the challenge that he faced there, having been through that horrible experience, seeing his mate die, seeing his other mate, Jason Semple, badly wounded. And he said he continued in the job because resilience chose him and that he felt that's what he got through his training and through his experience was that it wasn't an ego thing but resilience chose him it's um it's a very yeah it is a very humble way way to look at it and he was obviously a, a man of incredible integrity to be able to carry that carry his career on because it 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 is been the end of of many many good people Resilience is something that we try and instill and I know people have wanted to build resilience into the course and I think we've done that to a certain extent. 
I, I always say in drill that I can't give you self-discipline, but I can certainly exercise the self-discipline that you possess. And I think it's the same with resilience. I think we can exercise the resilience that people have, but we can't give it to them if they have none. Have you seen it reveal itself over these weeks? Oh, definitely. We see it in the, in the, in the opening days when they first arrive and they are here for you know, 24, 36 hours and they're going home because they don't want to be here. You know, they haven't even given it a chance yet. You've seen other people who have, who, um, have fallen over themselves and tripped here and tripped there, um, metaphorically, of course. Um, some of them actual. But, and rather than just throw the towel and they've stuck their hand up and they've gone, give me a hand here. Whether that be through the, the individual class mates, through instructional staff, we've got good support networks here. If they want to be here, we can keep them here. We can build that resilience. Yeah. I was saying before about how the younger people in particular have never had to face decisions and dilemmas in their lives before, and they're going to have them writ large very soon. Have you seen, I guess, an acceptance of this um, and that these will be made under pressure? I hark back to your earlier comments about the fact that in the first few weeks, you really pour it on. Are we at the stage now where you're able to turn the valve a little bit? I'd like to say yes, but no. Um, I don't feel currently that we are at that stage. I think I need to keep it on still. I accept that society has allowed them to, to give us about 50% of what they're capable of, and that's what they come in here. Uh, even through their session one, they, on, the online stuff, they can still... Of course, there's no criticism of the program because it, it works, and we found that it does work, but it still allows them a fair bit of uh, freedom to do whatever they want, um, whereas they don't get that when they come down here. They're the rigid timetable they've got you know rigid level of expectation and that's that's a that's a shock for a lot of people and it's taken this particular group a little bit longer than I would have liked for them to accept that this is now my life and I need to conduct myself in a certain way what sort of things are you picking up still not the Mexican wave yeah well you know what um intellectually the Mexican wave I Again, accept that my subject is one that is not assessed, not assessed in a written exam, in a practical exam, apart from their attestation prize. But it does demonstrate how people re- respond when they're doing things that they don't particularly want to do. And I've found that to be very interesting. And the data dumping of information, even though I can let them know over and over and over again that it's very, very important to their parade at the end of this, this is all about them. I'm doing this for them. You can you can tell them that all day long. But if they're not going to be assessed on it, they just dump it. And I'm still saying that to this week, and we, as, 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 as we've said, six weeks out, and I'm a little, little disappointed in that. So what's the plan from here? <laughs> Reinforcement of the information that was given. I, mean, I, I have no choice. I can yell at them all day long, but if, uh, but if they have dumped it, but they've got to get it back, so I bring it back to them. I spoke to one of your graduates could say a fellow called James Jin, mm-hmm. who's now with the PTC. Yeah. And he is leading a plainclothes team, storming the trains, doing uh, all kinds of wonderful work. And he looks back and he was terrified of you. But he now understands, because they go, they go onto the trains there en masse, um, flood the train. It's a very highly coordinated operation, has some danger to it. And he looks back to the, to the, to the camaraderie this diverse group of people as one. So that's a success. Mm, definitely. 
And look, and if I can be the be the bad guy that they rally together to be resistant against, I mean, I've I've, I've served my purpose, haven't I? I've brought them together. Do you remember your drill sergeant? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Bill White was his name, and he terrified me. As a matter of fact, Bill and I, who are now we are now friends, still terrifies me. <laughs> He's been out of the job for over twenty years, and he still terrifies me. And we're still friends. What did he give you? The things that I remember most about Bill on the drill square was his sense of, I'll use the word completeness. I've never really given this too much thought, but I'll use the word completeness. And what I talk about with completeness is that was the package right there. Visually, he impressed me because everything was exactly right. The way that he carried himself was exactly right. And it looked like a nuclear bomb could go off next to him and he wouldn't be phased. He'd still have that same look on his face with his cap down low over his eyes, and he wouldn't be phased. That really impressed me. Cool, clear, always in command. I know that's from a song, but it is. But those three things, he epitomised those. So I think he's, uh, you're channelling him? I'd like to think so. Because when these students go out, and they go into their, their placements in stations and squads and so forth, and they rise and fall as they do. Do you follow them? And, and I, some, I guess sometimes you might see in the, in the press where someone has failed or someone succeeded, and you think back to your time with them. Do you still have that sense of ownership when you see their careers going forward? Yes, I like to think that I've had some kind of impact. on it. I, I know that's, that's very egotistical to say that, but I get a real sense of achievement. And I, and I see people who have even at fairly junior achieving in the job. And I, I just think that's fantastic. Conversely, I also sometimes see names pop up for the wrong reason. And I'm not surprised by that. Because we could never reach them here either. You can't change a person. But equally, on the other side of the coin, I was looking at a story recently where a young female constable lost her life off duty, dives in to save somebody else. And uh, I think those moments must be obviously tinged with tragedy and regret, but also that police are the ones who do what others won't do. And so to instill that here, you've done your job. Yes, I think so. I think that person came to us as that person. I wouldn't like to take any credit on behalf of the, the, the teaching team or for myself for for the bravery of those of those magnificent people but i think we do do teach them that it's about service it's all about service service first always attend to your duty before your personal comfort and if we can if we can keep keep doing that i think we're going to keep on getting the success that we are having those people who do that and i read somewhere that somebody said when they're trying to teach their children about dealing with very stressful things on the television, like disasters and stuff like that. I can't remember who it was who said it, but they said, look for the helpers. They are the ones running towards the problem. I would suggest that most people that we have through here are those people. They are running towards the problem, not away from it. And that's magnificent. And that's you as well. With this problem of six weeks to go, you're not running away. You're in full voice. (laughs) Most definitely. Most definitely. There's a job on. I intend to make sure that they put on the best parade that they can possibly put on because that's what they want to do. They want to walk away from that day like we all did from our attestation day with a sense of, wow, that was magnificent. And I want them to uh, be prepared for that. They're going to have to work. 
On the other side of the coin, Acting Sergeant Henry Hurley's been drilling them on the physical side. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing better stamina, better better bearing, better fitness? I I don't really put them through something that's going to test their their, their stamina, but the work that Sergeant Hurley is doing is definitely coming across in my stuff because similarly we teach teamwork. So his subject plays off against mine and it's um yeah, it's it's a really good collaboration. It's too easy to say that He's the good cop, you're the bad cop. He wouldn't say that he's the good guy either. He's a fairly handy yeller too, I can tell you that. That's Protocol Sergeant Tony Wade. Stay tuned for a bombshell on his future in our next episode. This segment was sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police and law enforcement. That's all from inside the New South Wales Police Force. Next week, I'll be speaking with the team from Operation Trawler, that's flushing out sex offenders before they can strike. This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. To find out more about any of the products discussed on today's episode, search Police Bank inside New South Wales Police. Alternatively, speak to one of the Police Bank team on 131 728. Inside the New South Wales Police Force podcast is produced by Piccolo Podcasts and Media Productions. Host Adam Shan, producers Andrew Mensel and Courtney Besgrove. For New South Wales Police, Amy Hosking, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Sergeant Megan Knight and Senior Constable Ash Bold. Original music by Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band.